trees and no wife. That actually sounds really cool. So we go down, there's all kinds of like fishing and, and, and going out into a boat and hiking around. And we had food, it was fun. There were a lot of the families there. It's family, the elders and their families and kids were there. It was great. So after like being there for a few hours, we're kind of tired. I'm like doing daddy time all by myself, you know. So I'm a little worn out watching the boys. And uh, right before we go, it's like, all right, it's time for us to go. Say goodbye, everybody, hug everybody, kiss everybody, whatever. And then my boys say, daddy, can we get in the boat one more time? Now, what that means is, daddy, you're going to have to do all the work. Because my sons were about three and four and a half. You're going to do all the work out in the boat. But I acquiesced and said, okay, fine. So we go down to the boat. The boat is docked on the shore. And I put one son into the boat. And I turn around to grab the other son. And when I pick him up to turn, I notice that there is about 18 inches to maybe three feet away from the son who's already in the boat, a snake. And I throw my son into the water. Okay, I made that part up. It just sounded better. I didn't do that. <laughs> I freak out, though. And I turn and put my one son down on the ground. And I look at my other son and say, come here, because he's just slightly in the boat. And he is looking at this. Now, in his world, he's not actually seen a snake. He's heard about them. This is like a large worm. <laughs> and I don't know anything about snakes. Like, I've only seen a few snakes in my life that weren't, like, in a zoo or something like that. I've really only seen a few in, like, creation. I know nothing about them. I can tell you what a, a cobra is because it's got that thing on the side. That's about the extent of my wisdom. Oh, boa constrictor? I could probably get close on that one, although I might confuse it with an anaconda. The whole point is that's about the extent of my snake wisdom. I'm afraid this is a moccasin. And so I'm looking at my son. I'm like, come here. Here, I'm trying not to do any like quick moves besides, you know, throwing my son in the water. Like, come here, just come here. He won't come. I'm thinking, what are you doing? This is not a time to test me. Like, come here. Why? Snake. But still, there's no concept for why the snake might be a bad thing. I finally get my son to take a step towards me. I pick up my son, I pick him up. And at this point, there's enough commotion going on. Bruce, the owner of the place, has come down the hill. And he's like, what's going on? I'm like, there's a snake in the boat. And he's like, well, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I'm like, no, we'll just take the next boat. There's two boats. It's out on the, we'll wait. He's like, no, 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 you're taking this boat. He walks into the boat and he grabs the snake. Now, I, in my heart, am screaming like a little girl. <laughs> now, on the outside, I look really tough. But in my heart, I'm like, ah! He grabs it about six inches or so below its head, not close enough to the head. And guess what happened? It turned around and bit him. It latched on right there. Now, if in my heart I was screaming like a little girl, my heart has come out of my body into my mouth. <laughs> I am terrified. And my boy's eyes are I'm not joking. This is all they talked about for six months. It would come. Do you remember that time, Daddy? I remember. I don't even know if they remember it now. I remember, boys. I remember. Now, remember, I don't know what this is. For all I know, this is a moccasin. And my friend Bruce is now dead for trying to get us to go onto a boat. <laughs> and I am terrified. And he is like this. Well, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> That's it. He literally grabs it by the jaws, squeezes as hard as he can to try to get it to let go, and it won't let go. Blood is trickling down his hand. It's coming down his arm, and he is now my boy's new hero. <laughs> I have lost hero status. I don't know if I'm ever going to get it back again. 
He finally gets the thing pride free and he, everybody has come over and he's like, it's like a war wound, man. Like, I remember I got this one in the battle of 2014. It was great. I don't even remember what he did with the snake. I don't remember if they killed it or released it. I think he let it go somewhere in the woods. I'm like, at least cut its head off something. Now, this is all relevant because I don't know. Okay, seriously, real, real vote right now. Help me out. Have you ever been bit by a snake? I've never, personally. Anybody in here been bit? Okay. New vote. Ready? When a snake shows up, are you the kind of person that runs? Let's see you. You're the run. Most of you. How many of you are the run to? Like, there's a snake? How many of you are that? Okay, there's about 25 people. We need to keep our security team, get their eye on them. There really are two different types of people. Now, last week, you'll notice if you got a bulletin or if you download our app, it's not too late, you download our app, you'll notice this is part two, part two of a message. You do not have to have been here for part one to get today's message, but I want to give you a little background. Now, this message might make more sense in light of last week, so I encourage you to go online or whatever. If you're watching online right now or listening online at some point, go listen to last week. But for context's sake, last week we looked at a story that happened at night. A guy named Nicodemus, a religious guy, he comes to Jesus at night because he's got questions. I don't understand who you are. I see your miracles. I know something's up. I know it has to be from God, but I don't understand who you are. What are you doing? What are you here to tell us? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? What are you? And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, I'm here to tell you about the kingdom of God. And here's what I'm here to tell you. A man and a woman cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this baffles Nicodemus, like it would you. Nicodemus says, so you're telling me I got to call up mama and I got to climb back up in there again? Now, for those of us who've grown up in America, the language born again is not unfamiliar, but it has its own baggage because of the way it's used in our culture. But what Jesus does is he has a conversation with Nicodemus where basically what he says is, no, Nicodemus, the first time you were born, you were born through water, right? You were literally in water and then the water broke. You were born through water. This time around, you need to be born of water and spirit. See, it's not just a a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is still baffled. I don't understand how this is supposed to take place. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you can't understand this, how are you supposed to understand anything else? You're a religious teacher. You're the religious elite, and you don't get it. And yet little children seem to get it, Nicodemus. And then Jesus says this to him. He says, it's like the bronze snake when it was lifted up and all of Israel was healed. When I am lifted up, I will heal everyone. Now, last week we talked about this. In Numbers, I believe it's chapter 21, there's a story, and you got to get the context, because the context is what gives you today's fulfillment. So what happens in context is uh, God has rescued the Israelites, and if you've never studied the Israelites as slaves in Egypt, then you don't understand how terrible their pain was. The Israelites in Egypt were terrible, terrible slaves, back-breaking work from morning until night. They begged God, not for hours, for years, possibly decades. Save us, free us, help us. And the Egyptians at that point hated them. So they told them they had to produce the same amount of bricks, but they were not given the resources and the materials to make the bricks. So go ahead, produce the same amount of work, but I'm not giving you what you need to get it done. And it got harder and harder and harder and harder. And if you read descriptions about what it was like in those days, it was terrible. 
But now these same Israelites, God saved them, rescued them, took them in the desert. He's going to lead them into the promised land. And he's feeding them in the desert with this miracle food, literally called manna. And manna in Hebrew means, what is it? Because nobody knows what it is. It's this food that falls from heaven, and God feeds them with the manna. But they start to complain. Oh, we were so much better as slaves. At least when we were slaves, we had this. Now, what God does is when they start complaining in verse 21, he sends a snake to bite them all. And two things are happening in that story. Number one, we learn that God is good, but God is also wrathful. Meaning that when we have sinned against God, it has sparked that other side of him. He's just. And the Israelites are now spitting in his face. We don't like what you're doing. We don't like the way you provided for us. You're not good. You're not trustworthy. You're evil. That's what they're saying. So God sends snakes, and many of them get bit, and many of them die or get sick. But the other thing we learn, before you go, goodness, why would I want to follow this God? The other thing we learn is what God is showing them is metaphorically, they have a snake bite. And the bite of the snake goes far deeper than they know or understand. If you were to peel back the layers for a minute, And they can't know what you know today because you have more written since then. What God was trying to show them, and by the way, the New Testament says everything that happened in the Old Testament was for you to better understand God and what he's doing. So what you see when you pull back the layers today is God is saying, you have been bitten by the snake and the snake bite goes far deeper than you know. And I am trying to rescue you from the bite of the snake. Now here's the reality, and here's where we ended last week. All of us have been bitten by the snake. Now, the snake in that particular text is literal, but the snake is also metaphoric. See, the number one analogy used for Satan, that spiritual enemy of God, is snake or serpent or dragon. We see it in Revelation. We see it in Job. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Luke. We see it all over the place. Why? Because we have all been bitten by the snake. This starts in the very beginning when God made Adam and Eve, and there they were in the garden, and it says naked and unashamed. But then one day, Eve sinned against God by doing what the one thing God told her not to do. By the way, you, you probably think you're better than Eve, right? I have done this. You think to yourself, if I had just been told, don't do this one thing, I wouldn't do it. Okay, whatever that one thing you struggle with most that you know God wants you to stop doing, go ahead and stop. Don't ever do it again. Go ahead. Don't ever gossip again. Don't ever click on that image again. Don't ever pick up the drink again. Don't ever turn to the bottle again. Don't ever yell or hit or call names again. Just go ahead. Just stop. And let's just see how good you do. You keep going back, don't you? I can give you a better illustration. Go ahead and buy your favorite item, whatever it is. Coke. I mean, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Be clear. <laughs> Snickers. And just stick it in the fridge. Everybody knows Snickers tastes better in the fridge anyway. And then tell yourself you're not going to have it. Forever. And every day you're going to open up that fridge and look at it. And what's going to happen sooner or later? Your spouse is going to eat it. Exactly. (laughs) Which is eventually what happened in the garden. 
So Eve takes the fruit and she gives it to Adam. And we learn in Romans chapter four and five that because of what Adam did, not what Eve did, now all of us have been handed down what we call a sin nature. Now you may have grown up in a different church background, maybe Lutheran or Episcopalian or Methodist or Baptist or whatever it is. And because of that, we may use different words to describe the same concept. But what Paul tells us in Romans chapters four and five is because Adam sinned, Every person since Adam has sinned, and it's been passed down from father to son and daughter. Now, don't make too much more out of that, but notice it wasn't passed down from Eve. Adam was made first, and he sinned twice. Eve sinned once. His sin was the sin of omission and the sin of commission. And what we mean by that is he sinned by taking the fruit after Eve sinned and doing it, and he sinned doubly because he did not protect his wife the way he was supposed to. And now sin has been passed down to all of us. So we are literally born into a world of sin. Now this whole concept of sin may be baffling to you. And what sin means in the Bible is that we have rebelled against God. We have done what God asked us not to do. And you may still be struggling with the concept of God. And just so you know, because God is a creator, he has the right and he's the only one with the right to tell the creation what to do. You don't have the right, I don't have the right, but he has the right and he's the only one with the right because it's his creation. It's like if you were to build something, I don't know, say a robot or a car. And if the car doesn't do what you made it to do, you would have the right to do what you want to the car to make it do what you want it to do. Why? Because you made it. But in this case, God is the creator. He made everything. The prized part of his creation, us, rebelled. We did what we wanted instead of what he asked. Now, in that situation, God could have just said, that's it, I'm going to wipe them out and start all over. But he didn't because he's a good God. So what he did instead was he raised up a savior. We see this throughout the Bible. In fact, right there in the Genesis story, we're told that, that, that when the God comes down, he says, okay, now because of this, Adam this, and because of this, Eve this, because of this, snake this, God looks at the serpent, Satan, and says, and now one day, this offspring of this woman Eve will come and crush your head. It's pointing us to Jesus. One day, you're going to be defeated by one of these who you have deceived. You will bite their heel, but he will strike your head. In other words, you're going to give him a wound, but the wound will be mortal. It will not be the end of the story. He is going to crush you. The snake is a metaphor to point us to Satan. And here's the thing. Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 8, all, all of creation right now is subjected to sin. Guys, this is where cancer comes from and AIDS. This is where brokenness in your marriage and with your children. This is where your own strife in your heart comes from. When God comes down, did you know this? He looks at Adam and he says, Adam, from now on, you'll work the land, but the land won't work with you. You're going to have weeds. I believe what God is saying there is literal and metaphoric. Yes, there are literal weeds. Apparently, there weren't in the garden. I mean, what would that be like for those of you who enjoy garden work? But it's bigger than that. And I'll tell you, I know that because of the way the rest of the story unfolds. Read Leviticus 25 sometime. Recently, my studies took me there, and I was reading Leviticus 25, and we learn about something called a sabbatical for the earth. And God commands Israelites, every seven years, you're going to stop working. I don't know why we haven't picked up that biblical principle yet. <laughs> then every 50th year is the year of Jubilee. So after seven complete sevens, we'll have the Jubilee year. And you'll take that whole year off too. So when, and Israel never got there as far as we know. It's not written about. 
because they kept rebelling against God anyway. But you would theoretically have year 49 and year 50 off. Why? Because work was a gift for us. But the problem is now that sin has entered the world, we are all stressed out. We're trying to achieve. We're trying to accomplish. We're trying to become significant, important, wealthy, healthy. Fill in the blank. We are the most stressed out people possibly in the history of the world. There's more anxiety medicine being prescribed than ever, and partly because we have it. But think about the irony of this. Caffeine creates anxiety. Amen. I preach it. I live it. Hi, my name's Matt. I have a caffeine addiction. So we take caffeine to keep us going and anxiety medicine and sleep medicine to bring us down only to turn around the next day and start the process over because we are so afraid, anxious to miss. And maybe what you don't know as you're visiting today or listening online is that anxiousness comes in your heart as a byproduct of your rebellion against God. And here's the thing. That rebellion is directly related to the bite of the snake. His name is Satan. And Jesus says he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. In fact, in the book of Romans, as I've been referring to, chapter 3, Paul says this, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, when you hear that, today, this is a very popular phrase, right? You messed up, I messed up. Look, none of us are perfect. And what we mean by that is, you stay out of my business, I'll stay out of yours. Who are you to tell me what to do? But what the Bible means by that when it says it is, we have directly rebelled against God. We have aligned ourselves with the enemy, the serpent, the snake, the dragon, Satan. And we have literally rebelled against God. And the byproduct of that rebellion is this. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I want you to get this because this is huge. What Paul is saying here is all of our work, all of our striving, all of our trying to become significant, all of our rebelling against God, going our own path, ignoring what God has asked us to do, it's piled up a debt. And not a debt that you can simply write a check and say, okay, God, yeah, 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 here you go. It's piled up a debt so big that it is killing you. It's killing your heart. It's killing your body. It's killing your soul. It's killing your family. And many of you, if you just slow down long enough, you know it and you feel it. There was a guy, I had to look up what this was. He was a herpetologist. That means he studies amphibians or snakes. This is in roughly the 1950s, I believe it was 1957. His name is Carl P. Schmidt. He's so famous that they've named a number of snakes after him. How's that for a lifelong goal? <clears throat> well, one day he worked at uh, one of the natural history museums. I think it was the one in Chicago. One day somebody brought in a snake and he couldn't identify the snake. He kept studying it, studying it, couldn't figure it out. It had some similarities, but finally he landed on it must be a boom slang, which I have never heard of in my life until this week. Now, a boom slang apparently is one of the most poisonous snakes in the world, but it seems fairly harmless because in the front of its mouth, it has little teeth, but in the back of its mouth are its big teeth that it would bite into and leave its venom. Now, for most humans, in order for a, a, a boom slang to bite a thumb, it would literally have to open its mouth 170 degrees. Very difficult, not impossible, but so awkward that at that point in time, nobody believed boom slangs were dangerous for humans. 
And he got lazy one day. And he picked up the snake. And it bit him. Now, for whatever the reason being, he knows he's bit by a very poisonous snake. He starts journaling the experience, and he even journals that it opened its mouth up so big that the back fangs went into his skin. Instead of going to the doctor to get help, he decided to journal his experience, and here is his literal journal. 4.30 to 5.30 p.m., September 25th. Strong nausea, but without vomiting. During a trip to Homewood, went on a suburban train. 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., a strong chill and shaking, followed by a fever of 101.7. Bleeding of mucous membranes in the mouth began about 5.30, apparently mostly from gums. 8.30 p.m., ate two pieces of milk toast. Seems like a normal thing to do. 9 to 12.20 a.m., slept well. Urination at 12.20 a.m., mostly blood, but a small amount. Took a glass of water at 4.30 a.m., followed by violent nausea and vomiting. The contents of the stomach being the undigested supper. Felt much better. Slept until 6.30 a.m. September 26th, 6.30 a.m., temperatures 98.2. Ate cereal and poached eggs on toast and applesauce and coffee for breakfast. No urine with an ounce or so of blood about every three hours. Mouth and nose continuing to bleed. Eh, not excessively. Here's the last thing he wrote. At 1.30 p.m., he vomited and called for his wife. By the time help arrived, he was unresponsive, and he died of respiration paralysis. Now, here's the thing that's ironic about that. So many of us think like him. Here's what goes through our heads. I can handle it. I'm smart enough. I'm trained enough. I'm not like my dad. I'll never forget when I was a student pastor at my last church. I had two students that had come back around to me that they were on the weekends partying uh, heavy, living it up, messing around. And I said, look, I had to call them in. I said, look, you are two leaders in this youth group. I cannot have you living a public life here and a private life there. You either need to change or I'm going to have to ask you to step down. It's your choice. And I was dumbfounded. I thought for sure they'd say, you know, we thought we were getting away with it. They didn't think we would ever find out. Instead, they looked at me and said, who are you to judge us? I said, I'm not judging you. You are living in a way that is opposite of what God wants for you. Here's the scriptures that back this up. And the one of them looked at me and said, I can handle it. Then I said, okay, let's look at your family for a minute. Let's talk about how alcohol has ruined your mom's and your dad's previous marriages and is currently causing stress. And you and I have met privately to talk about this. But you can handle it. I'm not them. Let's talk about your brothers, how alcohol has ruined their lives. But you, you're the exception to the rule. Do you really believe that? And then he looked at me before he left my office. As I pleaded and pleaded, he looked at me and said, some of us just have to learn the hard way. You don't know if I'm capable Capable of what? You think you're smart enough to do this without help? You think you're good enough that you don't need anybody else around you? You just think you can push through. What's the definition of insanity, guys? Doing the same thing over and over and over again? Expecting a different result? But see, human beings ever since the garden have done the same thing over and over and over again. We're born. We rebel against God. We think our own way is better than his way. 
So we take matters into our own hands and we lie and we cheat and we deceive. And then one day we realize we've been bitten by a snake. Except this snake, unlike my friend, has injected a poison that is rotting away our souls. And we can write down the signs, we can ignore all the signs, or we can finally stop and say, man, this is not adding up. Something's wrong here. I can't seem to do this on my own. And even if you could, let's just say from this point forward, you could be completely perfect in every way God describes as perfect. The problem is you have every day that led to this one. What are you going to do about that? Well, again, let's look at Romans 6.23. The good news is God didn't leave us with the sting, the bite of the snake. Instead, he took us further. He said, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason Jesus came, and as he tells Nicodemus that night, see, when the bronze snake in Numbers 21 was lifted up, anybody who looked at the snake was instantly healed. Jesus says, I'm like the bronze snake. See, when I am lifted up on the cross, anybody who will look to me, turn to me, put their hope in me, trust in me, put their faith in me, will have life. In fact, here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter four, verse five. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. In other words, you aren't gonna get there on your own. You can't fix it on your own. You can't be right with God on your own. In fact, look at the very next chapter, Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by what? Faith. Then we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And that is the key word. Done. It's his work completed. It's his work that gives us rest. It's his work that gives us peace. How many of you watching online, how many of you sitting here today, that's the one thing that you would trade it all for? And I'll go all in. You can have the house, the cars, if I could just find peace. But no matter how hard you look, you can't find it. Because it's only found here. And the work he did for you. Now you may be sitting there saying, but how do I know if I have enough faith? It's a great question, isn't it? In fact, you'll hear some churches, depending on maybe whatever denominational background you came from, they'll talk about saving faith, which to me is a terrifying phrase. Because how do I know if I have saving faith? What if I mess up again? One of my uh, favorite pastors and teachers, a guy named Andy Stanley, he's Charles Stanley's son, for those of you who know the family. If you don't, don't worry about it. But he wrote a book, and in his book, he talked about growing up, hearing his dad throw down a sermon that convicted him, and he decided to receive the Lord, and he prayed a prayer. But then he went on in life, and he made some other choices, and he ended up at a conference, and a guy threw down again, and he said, if you're ready to receive Christ, you pray this prayer. And so he said, oh, man, that guy used different words than my dad did. So he prayed that prayer, and it happened again. And his whole point was, man, I was just struggling. How do I know if I said the right words? How do I know if I have enough faith? I heard this analogy. I think it's great. I'm going to attach it to one of my friends. One of my friends is a private pilot. He flies privately, but he was on a commercial plane. And one day as he was flying, the, the plane started to experience some serious turbulence. My friend reached over, grabbed his cup, shut his, whatever that thing is, that tray table there, and he just held his cup, sipped it down so it was halfway, and all of a sudden he said they dropped about 15 feet, and they didn't just do it once, they did it multiple times. And the person sitting next to him was hysterical. And all of a sudden the person looked at him and said, how can you be so calm? 
said, I trust the pilot's going to get me there. Well, how do you know? I just trust the pilot's going to get us there. Now, did they both get there? This person didn't have enough doubt to get up off the plane and jump. They had enough faith to stay on the plane, which is a phenomenal analogy. See, the person sitting next to my friend might not have had enough faith, or the same amount of faith, I should say, as my friend, but they're both on the plane. So you may be sitting here today going, how do I know? I've been bitten by the snake. I know it. I see it. I feel it. It's in my life. It's in my heart. I'm anxious. I'm stressed out. I know I have sinned against God, but I don't know what to do with it. How do I get rid of it? How do I find the peace? You put your faith in God. You put your faith in Christ as the only one who could save you. But see, God didn't just stop there. He gave you a gift, an opportunity, a marker moment. A chance to drive a stake in the ground and say, this is the moment. This is the moment I went all in with Christ. I remember it. In fact, it's in the very next chapter. Take a look with me. In Romans chapter 6, before we put this up there, I want to give you the context. As Paul goes on between Romans 5 and Romans 6, what he does is he has an argument with a guy who's not really there, basically. So as a part of this argument, he brings up this guy's argument, and then he tells him the response, and he brings it up again. This is how Romans is written. So if you're ever reading Romans, that may help you understand Romans a little bit. And what he says is, between Romans 4 and 5, when Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith, what happens is this guy, he proposes, says, okay, so let's say I'm saved by grace through faith, then why do I have to live differently? Why do I have to change? Why do I even have to? Why do I not just keep going the way I'm going? Jesus did all the work, so I'll just keep sinning the way I'm sinning. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, that's crazy talk. I don't think you understand what Jesus did on the cross when he became sin for you, when he died for you. And then he says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? See, what Paul is trying to get to is this. Jesus came to offer you life. Do you know what life is? Life is the absence of death. And you could say the opposite is true. Death is the absence of life. And in that garden, when the snake bit Adam and Eve, Jesus comes, or sorry, what did you say? Jesus, God comes down and he says, now in dying death, that's what the Hebrew literally says, or in dying, you will surely die. Or many English translations just simply say, and now you will surely die. But it's actually repetitive in the Hebrew because God is wanting to lay this foundation that now in death, there's death. It's a double death because after you die, you are surely going to die. Why? Because you are eternally separated from God. But praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. Because when we go into those waters of baptism and we come up out of the waters, what we did is we left behind the old us. We were raised to life in the new us. Look at the rest of what Paul says here. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Now, I'm about to do like baptism 101 in 30 seconds, which means I'm not going to do it justice. And depending on your background, you're going to have a million questions. I encourage you to send all of those uh, to Billy Edmonds at bedmonds at kingswaychurch.org. I'm joking, all right? You can email me all you want, and, and I'll answer as many as I can, as best as I can. But listen, if you're, depending on your church background, 
If you came in here as Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or whatever you were raised in, maybe you don't have a clue, but I heard somewhere, I read somewhere, somebody said once, I don't know what to do with it. There's basically these two extremes. So imagine with me for a moment a cross right here on the stage. And the cross is the moment where we pass from death to life, okay? It's at the cross. There are some who, and I'm trying to do this from your standpoint, so there are some who would say, I was lost, I put my faith in Christ, I repented, saved, and then I was baptized. And that makes baptism the first good thing I do after I'm saved. I became one with him. It was my first good work, you might say. There are others who will say, I was lost. I was met Jesus. I gave my life to him. I repented. I was baptized. And then I was saved. And what's happened, consequently, is now we have churches all over the place arguing and fighting about this very issue. Ink has been spilled for hundreds of years on this subject. Here's what I say. I'm going to resolve the whole thing for you in 30 seconds. Why are we fighting? It's like two people standing at the cross saying, well, how'd you get here? Here's what I know. I'm going to stand in heaven with many people who disagree with me about this very issue. And we're going to be arm in arm singing praises to the one who saved us. But I know this. You cannot argue with the clear teaching of scripture about baptism. And so some of you sitting here today, maybe you were sprinkled as a baby. Let me just tell you real quick, just say thank you to your parents. In fact, call them today, text them if they do that. Uh, uh, write them a letter, just say thank you. Because what they were trying to do because of this thing called sin, they probably came from a church background, believed in original sin. Recently, I met a family here who had a baby in the family die and they were up at Riley because Riley is a Catholic hospital. They said, we need to get the priest in here and hurry up and baptize the baby. As if the baby were gonna go to hell. But the context for them is original sin. Because of sin nature handed down from Adam and Eve all the way along, if we don't get that baby wet, that baby's going to go to hell. I think we're way overstating with the Babel. Ba the, Babel? the Babel is the baby in the Bible. <laughs> the Babel. What the Bible teaches on this subject. What the Bible does teach on the subject is we are dead in our transgressions. I believe babies and children, based off Romans chapter 1, have what we call available light. When they are old enough to understand that they have sinned, I believe the Bible teaches there at that point they will be held accountable for their sin. At what age is a child accountable for their sin? The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't say. But I think you could draw some, some similarities. We see in Hebrew culture that young boys, 13 years old, Go through a bar mitzvah to show that they are accountable now and are growing up to be young men. Some parents come up to me and say, when is my child old enough to be baptized? The moment that they realize they are a sinner and need a savior. Most children, it's good to guess nine or 10 years old. There have been exceptions. I've seen some kids at six or seven that I thought they get it. They don't understand it all. They'll understand more later, but they probably get it. It's hard to imagine before seven because it's about seven years old that a child begins to understand and rationalize and logicize and not just follow mom and dad's lead. So what do I do if I were sprinkled? Well, I think you follow the biblical pattern. The Bible word for baptism is the word baptizo. It literally means to dip or immerse. In Greek culture, there are actually many, many writings that talk about ships being sunk. And what happened when they were sunk is they were baptized into the whatever it is, the sea or the ocean, wherever the ship was. That's the word that's used there, baptized. It doesn't mean the water splashed upon them. It means they were sunk down into the water. See where sprinkling comes from, and again, this is the 30-second version. 
But it comes from the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, where the high priest one time a year would go and erase the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of a sacrifice onto the Ark of the Covenant. So then you go into Hebrews, and Hebrews says that sprinkled blood is the blood of Christ, except for it covers all our sin. And so they do sprinkling as a connection to that. And my only argument with that is when we read the book of Acts, we don't see anybody being sprinkled. Every single person goes down into the water. Every single person comes up out of the water. And if you want to fulfill Romans chapter 6, in order to be buried with Christ, raised to life, you go down into the water. I am in no way standing up here and saying, anybody who's sprinkled isn't going to make it. No. I'm saying here at Kingsway, we practice one form of baptism. Death, burial, and resurrection and a watery grave by immersion. And we all start at the exact same point. That creates no division and disunity among us then because we're all there. I love the way, I think this is a Presbyterian pastor actually, Alexander Shimeman, I can't even say his name. He says this, baptism is the representation not of an idea but of the very content and reality of the Christian faith itself. To believe in Christ is to be dead and have one's life hid with him in God. Such is the central, overwhelming, and all-embracing experience of the early church. An experience so self-evident, so direct, that at first she did not even explain it, but saw it rather as the source and the condition of all explanations, all theologies. What he's trying to say here is we ask questions all the time, like, so do I have to be baptized to be saved? It's never even asked in the New Testament. Because every person coming to faith in the New Testament simply said, man, what's the response necessary? And the response consistently is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Or I should probably say the right verse. Acts chapter, I did say the right word, 238. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 238. Why? It's not because baptism saves you. There are some out there and there are some even in our brotherhood, maybe in this church, in this room, you are allowed to disagree with me and stay at Kingsway. And if you write me an email, just be kind, okay? You're allowed to be wrong. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. It's a joke, okay? We'll get to heaven, we'll work it out. Acts chapter two, verse 38 tells us though that you were dead. These people already have faith, they're crying out. What do we do? What do we do? We believe, how do we fix this? And Peter's response is, well, look, you already got faith, so turn to God and let him heal you. And don't just let him wash away your past. Let him fill you up with the power you need for right living from here going forward. In fact, Paul gives this analogy, check this out. In Galatians chapter three, verse 26, he says this, for you are all children of God by what? Your faith in Jesus and his finished work made you a child of God. However, verse 27, and all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Let me just blow your mind for a minute. Maybe this won't blow your mind, but it blew my mind. When did clothing come into the picture? In the garden. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. And then they sin. God kills an animal and covers them with clothing. Their clothing is only covering their sin and shame. The heart problem has not been dealt with yet. And then Jesus comes and Paul says, and in baptism, God strips off your sin. He strips off your shame and he covers you now with the glory, the innocence, the beauty, the purity of Christ. So when he looks at you, he doesn't look at you and say, sinner, sinner. He looks at you and says, saint. 
my son, my daughter. Peter, trying to make the same point, he says this, man, in the Old Testament, God wiped away sin off the face of the planet through a flood. God was punishing sin, and so he removed evil people. But now, Jesus does this through baptism. It's a new kind of flood. It's a New Testament flood. This time, God wipes sin away, and he leaves you dead, but he doesn't leave you dead. He raises you to life. This is actually his words, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And that water, the waters of the flood, is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Understand what Peter's saying. If you don't have a clean conscience because of your past, maybe, maybe it's because you either haven't been immersed in baptism or you didn't understand what you did when you were. Peter's saying it's the commitment, the response to God of a clean conscience. My conscience is clear, not because I went into the waters. My conscience is clear, not because I'm perfect. My conscience is clear because I'm claiming the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus over my life. And how many of you want that kind of peace? That peace that allows you to look in the mirror and say, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not going to claim my goodness anymore. I'm going to claim the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to be able to look at God the Father and say, I know I'm a screw-up. I know I've sinned against you. I know I've rebelled against you. I've even done it in ways I didn't even know I did it, Father. But praise be to God, I have a clear conscience because Jesus washed me clean. Again, Alexander Shimamen says this, in baptism, because it is an event, the form and the essence, the doing and the happening, the sign and its meaning coincide for the purpose of one is precisely to be the other, both to reveal and to fulfill it. Baptism is what it represents because what it represents, the death and the resurrection is true. Here's a little helpful phrase to hang on to. You'll find this towards the bottom of my notes. I've got to do one, two, skip a few because I've been long-winded. I know that'll surprise some of you. We are saved by grace through faith. And we are commanded to be baptized. And that command is not a harsh one. That command is a life giving freedom. I don't know about you guys, but I have sinned since my baptism. I've even confessed some of those sins publicly before. Not only that, but I've had seasons of doubt, seasons where I was angry at God and didn't know what he was doing. I was more like the hysterical person on the plane next to my friend than my friend. But through it all, God was my rock. And I can always point back to that day when I was 12 years old in December when I gave my life to Christ and became one with him and said, God, thank you for grabbing me on that day and never letting go. Thank you for never giving up on me. Thank you for never abandoning me. I return to you now. I don't need to get baptized again. I was already baptized. I went through a hard season. I went through a doubting season. I went through a faithless season. I trust you. And I've got that marker moment I will always look back on. I've got pictures of my wet head I looked funky. I had a bolo on. Tell me how cool I was. 
But I remember that day because it's the day I chose to go from death to life. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had that day? Have you ever made that decision where you said, you know what, I'm walking away from this past now and forever, and you might not know what that means yet, and it terrifies you. I just want to tell you what that means is you're walking into the very power that you need to become the person that you've been trying to become on your own and failing at. That's what it means. To become the person conformed and made in the likeness of God's son. And today could be your day. In just a moment, we're going to sing a lot. And there's going to be movement all over this room. There's going to be people taking communion and celebrating that Christ has already redeemed them and saved them. And some of you, you may come down and take that bread and take that juice and realize I've never actually surrendered. I've never actually gone all in with Christ. And for you, I would just encourage you to bypass the communion and actually come down right now and surrender to Christ. Now, I know what goes through your head because it goes through most people's heads, right? I, I, I didn't bring any clothes. We got it covered. Swim trunks, T-shirts, towels, hair dryers. We don't necessarily have makeup for you, but we got everything else, all right? You might be thinking, but I really wanted all my family there. I get it. I'm not even arguing with it. But I'll tell you, that's not the biblical pattern. The jailer in Romans chapter, I believe it's 9, gets baptized in the middle of the night. Anyway, it's a little further than that. He gets baptized in the middle of the night. And he's got some of his family there, but he didn't call everybody in. It's just the middle of the night. It's ready. How about this one? And I said Romans, I meant Acts. Acts chapter 8, uh, a guy named Philip is led by the Holy Spirit to a man who's a eunuch. A, man, a eunuch is a foreigner. He's not even a Jewish man, but he's reading uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant, about Messiah, about Jesus. And he looks at Philip, and Philip says, hey, would you like for me to explain what you're reading? And he says, I don't understand. Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip says, he's talking about himself, and he climbed up in the little chariot that they're whatever, the, the thing they're riding in, and he explains to him the gospel, and at some point, he tells him about baptism. How do I know? Because all we have is about two paragraphs of the conversation, but in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, it says this, as they rode along, they came to some water, and this eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Notice he didn't say, oh man, I gotta go gather all my family together. I gotta make a really big deal out of this. This man is so moved by what Christ did on the cross. He's like, right now, why not me? Why not me? And then in verse 38, he ordered the carriage to stop. They went down into the water, and Philip immersed him there. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. We don't even know what that means. Like, all of a sudden, he's there, and then he's not. The eunuch never saw him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Could you imagine that day? The eunuch turns around. Hey, where'd that dude go? I don't know. I don't care. This is amazing. I am new. I have life. My past is gone. But what about Philip? Doesn't he need more? No, no, no. He made a commitment to Christ, not to Matt Nickerson, not to a church, not to your parents, not to whoever it is in your life that in your head you're like, oh, no, no. I'm really anxious about what they're going to say. Your commitment is to Christ. And he went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because he has life and no longer death. And I just have this suspicion that some of you sitting in this room are feeling God tugging at your heart right now. Part of the reason I know is because I've been praying that God would do that. Let me ask you a question. If you're in this room and you think today is the day for you to get baptized, I don't want you to look at your spouse or anybody else. I just want you to stand up right now if that's you. We've got one over here. And one back here. 
Anybody else? Can we just say, praise God for these two who just stood up. All right, what's going to happen now is we're just going to sing a few songs. Relax, you got time. We're going to move around the room. We're going to celebrate the goodness of God, the life of Christ in us right now. We're going to take communion. But listen, I know some of you are sitting there going, I know it's me. I know it's me, but I can't, I can't, I can't let go of this thing. I can't turn away from this thing. Look, the only way you can surrender is to wave the white flag. You got to wave the white flag. God will not put you to shame. He will not embarrass you and neither will we. What you need is a new day, a new beginning. So I encourage you, while the rest of us are getting up mingling around, it's safer because everybody will think you're walking to a table to take communion. You could just sneak right past them. And you too, I want you also, just come on down here. You can see Chris, wave at everybody, Chris. Chris is over here. He's ready to talk to you about this Jesus. He's ready to help you change clothes. He'll help you with everything but your makeup. <laughs> and today will be your day. Let's pray, and then we'll all celebrate. Father in heaven, I thank you for this glorious celebration, Father. I thank you for the two already who've given their lives to you, God. And I also pray for those who are in this room who feel you tugging on the heart, but they're afraid to let go of the past. God, I pray that you give Chris and his team wisdom to know what to say and how to say it, God, to answer their questions. But God, right now, stir, move, break through the hardness around our feet that's keeping us planted where we are instead of moving forward in faith. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.